separate us from God. And so what happens is, is when we start living in a way that's contrary to the will of God, we start, instead of turning into prayer, we start to run in the other direction. Anybody here have experiences with that? Don't raise your hand. I know that I have. Where when you start finding your heart veering, instead of turning into the Lord, you turn away because you feel the tension based on who God is and his perfections and who we Most are Most kids go through a stage where they lie a lot. <laughs> a child knows they've done the wrong thing, but they run away from the truth, not wanting to face any consequences. We don't change much as adults, not without a spiritual intervention. As Pastor Daniel tells the story of King David and his spiral downward from sin, we'll hear a familiar story of a man who continues to run from God. We'll find out how we can learn to run to the Father instead. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with part one of his message entitled, Living on a Prayer. Bon Jovi. From New Jersey. John Bon Jovi actually grew up in the next town over from where I grew up, Sayreville, New Jersey, which was actually the our arch rivals for all of our sports, but why do we play living on a prayer? Well, we're in this series that we're calling the top 10 as we're looking at different psalms and we're linking psalms with popular songs based on certain content. Now, of course, living on a prayer was Bon Jovi's second number one single off of their 1986 album called Slippery When Wet. 1986 was actually a good year to be from New Jersey because the New York Mets won the World Series that year as well. Oh, yeah, there we go. (laughs) I mean, the song Living on a Prayer, I mean, in its context for Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora and uh, professional songwriter Desmond Child, it was about a working class couple just trying to make it, just trying to make it through life. And so their idea is that, hey, we're, we're, we're living on a prayer. We're just trying to make it through. And what's interesting is, although the circumstances of this fictional couple's lives might be different from yours, it's not actually the wrong sentiment that each one of us is living on a prayer. Life is not easy for anybody. And prayer is the word that we use for communication with God. That's what it is. And that each one of us, we, we need to be people of prayer. We desire it, and this title, Living on a Prayer, is actually the perfect title for the name of our psalm that we're going to look at today. So I want you to open up in your Bibles to Psalm number 51, Psalm 51. If you're new to the Bible, just open up. In the beginning, it's about, I don't know, for me, it's about a quarter or a third of the way through the Bible. So you have the book of Job, and then you have the book of Psalms. Psalms is the single largest book in your Bible, 150 chapters or 150 songs. I want you to notice the introduction. If you have a, if you had a Hebrew Bible, this would actually be the first verse. It says in Psalm 51, to the chief musician, 
a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this was written to the chief musician. It's a psalm of David. And it says it's after Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David is living on a prayer, as we'll see in the psalm, because this is David's most, maybe his most raw point of his life. It's the most critical part of his life. Now, I want to give you the context, and you can read it later on your own. I'll give you a synopsis of it right now. But the context is 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. That's the context for this song, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Now, according to these two chapters, what you have is that David is the king of Israel. He is the most important person in Israel next to the Lord himself. He is God's anointed one, right? And when the springtime came, David sent his armies out. And this chapter tells that he should have gone with his armies. He should have been there, but he wasn't. He sent his generals out. He stayed at home. And one day he was out in his palace and he was looking out and he noticed a woman bathing. And instead of turning away, he watched her and her name was Bathsheba. And so what did David do? He called her. And when the king calls for you in that culture, you just go. The king has total authority in that culture to do what he wants to. So Bathsheba goes and David lies with her. He, he lays down with her. He commits adultery with her. She's married to a man named Uriah the Hittite. And after it's all over, she goes back. She sends to him some time later and she says, King David, I'm with child. So David decides, I need to cover up what I've done. I need to cover it up. So what does he do? He's like, well, I'm going to invite Uriah back from the battle. He's in the army. I'm going to have him come on back. And so Uriah comes on back and David says, hey, so how's things going? And Uriah gives him a little update. He says, hey, why don't you just go home? He's thinking to himself, he's been away from his wife. He's going to go home and he's going to want to enjoy the blessings of marriage with his wife. But Uriah is an honorable man. And so Uriah, instead of going home to be with his wife, sleeps outside of the gates of David's palace. And when David said, why didn't you go home and enjoy your wife? He said, look, Joab and the other armies, they're out there sleeping under the stars. And how can I go home and enjoy my wife at a time like this? So David's like, well, okay, my plan's not working. So I'll make it even a better plan. I'll get Uriah drunk. And then he'll definitely go home and sleep with his wife. So David gets him drunk. I mean, this is all there. Second Samuel 11 and 12. He gets him drunk. But Uriah again would not go. So now at this point, David can't get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. So when it comes out that she's with child, to be able to say, well, that's, you know, her husband's child. He's trying to cover his tracks. So he's like, okay, I know what I'll do. He writes a letter to Joab and he tells Uriah the Hittite, deliver this letter to Joab. And it says, I want you to put Uriah at the fiercest part of the battle. And I want you to retreat and he's going to get killed. And so sure enough, Uriah delivers the letter to Joab, and Joab does what his commander tells him to, and Uriah is killed. And word comes back to David, Uriah the Hittite has died. Right? And so David thinks to himself, okay, I can't get caught. And then God speaks to a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes to David and says, hey, David, I, King David, I have to tell you a story. And he's like, okay. And he's like, well, there's a rich man, and there's a poor man, and they're neighbors. And the rich man has flocks galore. He's got all sorts of goods. And then the poor man just has one little you baby lamb that in that day functioned like the house dog. He ate from the table with the kids. And the rich man had a visitor. And the visitor, he wanted to celebrate with the visitor. So, so instead of taking one of his own lambs, 
from his multitudinous flock, he went to his poor neighbor and he took his one little ewe lamb and he killed it. And David got incensed, angry. He got angry. And he said, this man will die and he will pay back fourfold. And then Nathan looked at David and in the literal Hebrew of that text says, David, you the man. You're the man. Because you're the king. You're rich. You took Uriah's little you lamb, his wife, as yourself. That's the context for this psalm. Now, you might be hearing this for the first time, maybe not ever hearing that part of David's life and thinking to yourself, I mean, what a scoundrel. I mean, what a horrible person. But then you realize that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, that if you have lust, you've committed adultery, and if you hate somebody, you've murdered them. So although the circumstances of David's experience and our experience may be different, we're just like David, aren't we? All of us. There's not one person in here who sits outside of the reality that David is living in. The reality that sometimes we make a mistake and then we lie about it to exacerbate the lie. We try and cover our tracks. We all know what this is like, don't we? All of us. There's not one, there's not one person who has ever lived save Jesus Christ alone who doesn't understand what it's like to do something wrong and then try and cover your tracks along the way. That's what David did. And that is the context of Psalm 51. So I want to jump on in to this psalm. And in each point that I'm going to make, it's going to be let this equal or lead to something else. So let something that's happening lead somewhere else. So let's just jump in. Verse 1, Psalm 51. It says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. So David begins with this simple reality that we need to let sin lead to prayer. Let sin lead to prayer. I want to define for you the word sin because sin is a, is a church word. It's a biblical word. It's not used very much in the modern day way that people speak. What sin is, is sin is simply missing the mark. So whatever the perfectly lived life looks like, given your circumstances and context, anything that's a deviation from that is called sin. Okay? Now, the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches quite simply that all people are sinners. That not one person except Jesus lives a life that is free from this discrepancy from the perfect version of yourself. And I'm going to be coming back to that numerous times. But what's interesting and what David is doing differently from what most of us do is when we sin, most of us, instead of turning to prayer, we run away from God. Because we make mistakes, and especially like in David's case where it's this enormous, famous mistake, when we start to live lives against God, instead of leading it into prayer, we normally head in the other direction. The prophet Isaiah talks about it, that our sins separate us from God. 
And so what happens is, is when we start living in a way that's contrary to the will of God, we start, instead of turning into prayer, we start to run in the other direction. Anybody here have experiences with that? Don't raise your hand. I know that I have. Where when you start finding your heart veering, instead of turning into the Lord, you turn away. Because you feel the tension based on who God is and his perfections and who we are and our imperfections. So David, as he's grappling with what's going on in his own life, instead of letting it leading him away from God, he turns it inward. He lets his sin lead him to seek God as opposed to run from God. And that is what the distinctive of the Christian faith is. And when I say Christian faith, I mean the faith that comes from the gospel. Not some other gospel, but the gospel. And every religion says we are people searching from God, but the gospel says that God has come searching for us. Every religion says you need to do these, these things, and then you're good with God. And the gospel says, listen, you can't do any of those things, so God's coming to get you. That's the Christian gospel, that God loves the world, that he came for us because we're running away. All of us run away. That's what we do. So notice what David, as he prays, he says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Have mercy, blot out, wash me, and cleanse me. See, David is not coming because of his worthiness, because he knows he's not. He's saying, Lord, do this according to your loving kindness. God, you made a, a promise, a covenant with me. Don't do it because of what I'm doing. Do it because of who you are. Let this mercy be according to your tender mercies. Don't give me what I deserve, Lord, because I know what I deserve. But Lord, give me mercy because of who you are. And then David starts running all these words that speak about being changed, being cleansed. Blot out my transgressions. My transgressions there, I want you to scratch it out as if it never happened. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. He, he's speaking as someone who's been soiled, who wants to be clean. Cleanse me from my sin. And then in verse 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, it's interesting. David is acknowledging the full breadth of his sin. He's saying, God, yes, I sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite and their families, and I sinned against my own kingdom and all these things, but Lord, really my sin is against you. See, and I think this is the component that most people don't ever realize when we do something wrong, and if we're willing to own what we've done wrong, which, as I said already, is really hard for all of us, right? We lie, and then we lie more, and we lie more, and we cover, and we cover, and we cover. But if we're willing to own it, oftentimes we'll own it with somebody else. We'll say, look, I did this wrong to you. And we neglect the reality that the main person who is grieved and offended by what we do is on the vertical axis. It's God. Because in God's perfections, in God's perfections, our slight variations or extreme variations are totally offensive. Against you, you only have I sinned, he says. David realized that he has placed himself in a precarious position. 
So he's letting this reality of his mistakes lead him into prayer, and he's acknowledging it in its fullness. But notice what it says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, oftentimes we make mistakes and we want to be like, God's mean. God's mean for being this way. Don't we do that? We're always trying to push the buck off. It's someone else's fault, not mine. David's like, no, 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 no. I've done this against you and you're just and you're blameless. I'm the one who's got the problem, not you, God. And it makes me think of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this is why letting our sin lead to prayer is so important. Because if we come to God and we open up our hearts and we say, God, I'm going to tell you what you know already about me. I'm going to own what is mine. It says that God is faithful and he's just to forgive us. See, you know why that is? I'm going to tell you something. This is important. God already knows that you sin. God knows what we're made of. That's the nature of the message of Jesus is that God is saying, look, I know that you do this. This is why I sent my son. Because you do this. And I do this. And that's, that's the nature of the gospel. When we confess, we're agreeing with God that God knows what we're doing. We're saying, God, you know. You see. So we're letting our sin lead to prayer. We had a guy here this morning, first service, a young man. His name is David. Man, he, man, the opportunity to receive Christ. He was like, boom, came on down. Pastor Daniel Keels talked to him, and Pastor Daniel Keels came up to me after, trembling, excited. That was the real deal. That young man just got really saved this morning. Really saved. But we want you to pray for people. Why? We pray because we all struggle with sin. Everybody does. And the reason, the only difference between those of you here who've put your faith and trust in Jesus and those of you, who you people who you know who don't follow Jesus, the only difference is that you're willing to say, I acknowledge that I've sinned and I'm ex- receiving God's forgiveness by believing in Jesus. You are exactly the same. We are the same as everybody. The only difference is, is we're saying, God, I trust you. I trust that the way to be changed is by Jesus, by believing in him and following him. That's the only difference. And we want to see people's lives transformed. We want to see people come from running from God and let God save them. That's what we want. So I want to encourage you to pray. I don't understand all the reasons that prayer works. I just know that it does. So we begin by letting sin lead to prayer. Let's keep going. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. We need to let reality lead to cleansing. We need to let reality lead to cleansing. 
Notice what he says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. See, in David confessing to the Lord, he wants to give a complete accounting. Not only is he owning his most recent things, but he's saying, I've always been this way. And it's interesting, if you read all the writings of all the major religions in the world, every religion agrees that humanity has a problem. That's why religion exists. Every psychology book, people have a problem. It's about what that is. And what the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that humanity doesn't just commit sins. Humanity's problem is that we have a sin nature, a sin being. Our default is sin. That's what the Bible teaches. They call it depravity. Some people call it original sin. But the Bible's teaching on humanity is that although we were created in God's image, our default is rebellion against God. And that's why you get it. That's why we have what we have in this world, because our default is to live in rebellion against God. And so David's saying, look, not only did I do some really horrible things, but I've always been like this. Now, those of you who are parents, you understand this. Because no parent has sat down with their child and said, listen, when you do something that you're not supposed to do and you get caught, lie. Really lie. I mean, go all out and cry. Any parent do that? I hope not. That's bad parenting. We don't want to do it that way. But it's amazing. You have these children, you never teach them, but they know how to do that. They just, it just comes naturally. I remember when Obadiah was small, you know, there was a potted plant. We made first time parent mistake. We had the potted plant at little kid level. You know, so Obadiah's in the family room and all of a sudden you walk in and the potted plant and the dirt's all over the floor. And you're like, Obadiah, did you do that? Nope. (laughs) There's nobody there. (laughs) Nope. Mm -mm. You know, and then as they get older, they get more intricate with it. Because then they start like, oh, no, I was here. You weren't here. You don't know what happened. Let me tell you what happened. (laughs) Now, do you think I sat down and like, listen, this is how to self-protect by lying, buddy. You don't teach kids that. They just know how to do that. Why? Because we're created with this flaw that plays itself out. And everybody does. Everybody does. And that's why he says, I was created. It's like, I've been like this my whole life. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, I want to go on a slight tangent. It may not be so slight. Now, there's been a lot of people in church who read that and say that the act of lovemaking between a man and a woman is sinful. That's how they interpret that verse, that in sin my mother conceived. That's not what it means. That's not what it means at all. And what's interesting is if you look at those outside the church, they have a whole other view of sexuality. What he's saying is he's saying, my mother was a sinner and so was my father and so am I. My parents have the same issue that I have that I'm passing down to my kids. Jesus is real. Let sin lead to prayer. That was at the heart of the message today as Pastor Daniel taught about missing the mark and how we should respond. Our tendency is to run away from God, like the example we heard in King David. 
when we should turn toward Him. It's our joy to bring you Jesus is Real Radio each day here on this station. We want to give you the opportunity to partner with us here at Jesus is Real Radio so we can bring the ministry to as many people as possible. Simply log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and select Partner from the main menu. There you can help spread God's Word by becoming a monthly supporter or by giving a one-time gift. For most of us, our smartphone is an extension of our body. They are constantly ringing and dinging, telling us what to do and where to go next. We want to encourage you to subscribe to the Jesus Is Real podcast. Each week, the programs right here on the radio are available in podcast format. So if you miss one of the broadcasts, you can always catch up by subscribing to the Jesus Is Real podcast. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel, we'll highlight how the world looks at issues and how it's often the opposite of what God intends. That's why we can't follow our own hearts, but have to seek after the Lord. You've been listening to Jesus Is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series entitled The Top Ten. Until then, may God bless.